Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Eccentric, the makers of the K-Box and the new K-Pulley. Guys, flywheel training's really grown in popularity of late, and although it's something that's been around for a while, the simple reason that it's grown in popularity is because it works. We've been lucky to have a K-Box in our weight room for the past three years, and we've seen some really great things when it comes to improving the athlete's ability to change direction, and then looking at our return to play protocols with different lower body injuries with the student athletes. The love-hate relationship that everyone has with the K-Box is now just going to grow more with the addition of the K-Pulley. The ability to do standing presses, pulls, rip-throughs, and knee drive exercises is just going to be another arsenal to our training and another addition to the love-hate relationship that our student-athletes have with the awesome tools that come from Eccentric. Go ahead and hop over to Eccentric.com today to check out what they have. Guys, I can't recommend it enough, and I guarantee you won't be disappointed not just with the products, but with the awesome customer service that Eccentric provides. Hey, everybody. If you enjoy the podcast and the content it provides, be sure to hop over and check out the community. The community is an exclusive members website that is just an extension of what we do here in July at the Central Virginia Sport Performance Seminar. What it is is a combination of video lectures, a coach's corner with your Monday morning take-home information, and a forum where you can talk about anything and everything related to the field of strength and conditioning. In the community, you'll find content added each month from some of the top practitioners in the world, ranging from PhDs to high-level coaches, bringing you exactly what they're doing with their athletes or their research at the present moment. On top of that, an additional discussion by coaches bringing you that Monday morning information, things that you can add to your training program right away. Tying that in with the opportunity to discuss with coaches around the world in the forum on anything and everything from the topics addressed in these presentations to whatever you're seeing in your daily life as a coach. If this sounds like the right thing for you and your staff, go ahead and hop over to cvasps.com community and try it out for 48 hours for just a dollar. If you like it, you're signed up, ready to roll, and you're jumping into all the great content added each month. If not, feel free to go ahead and cancel at any time. No questions asked. We're really excited about what we're building in the community and hope you are too. Go ahead and hop over to cvasps.com community and check it out today. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today, guys, we are going to talk athlete-dependent training with Parkway Central High School's Ryan Banta. Uh, guys, after a really quick intro, Ryan's going to get right into it, talking about you know, his book, The Sprinter's Compendium. Um, and then we're going to get into talking about training, who we learn from, who's influenced him as a practitioner. And then we get into the role of the weight room and how he identifies athletes when we're talking about being more of a volume athlete or more of a, a less volumed athlete, if you may. We finish off getting into uh, the book, who the authors are, and, and what connections um have impacted him and how these connections have made him a better coach. This is really an awesome talk, guys. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let's get right to it. Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Hey, man, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so listen, man, for the the one person listening that doesn't know who you are, let, let's give them a quick <laughs> 411 as to who Ryan Banta is and what you've been doing and what you've been up to. So I was kind of a frustrated sprinter in, in high school and college and spent a lot of time injured. And, and I kind of had this bug or, or demon in my soul, so to speak, that uh, wanted me to kind of figure out, well, how did that play out and why did that play out the way that it did? 
and I had an opportunity to coach with uh, my old high school coach. And after about a week and a half of spending time with him, I realized that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And that coaching was something that I think I could, you know, offer to other people and to really give them a, give them an experience that might be slightly better than my own. And uh, to kind of not have to learn from the, the mistakes that maybe I made or some of the things I learned through training. And as time went on, you know, I got to be the uh, head women's coach over at Parkway Central High School. And I've been coaching there now for 17 seasons in track. Uh, I coached football there for a bit. Uh, took our team to this state title as an assistant coach, as the strength and conditioning guy for that. And then an opportunity opened up for me to coach for the cross country program. And that gave me a chance to coach the female athletes year round and just to imp implement some of my philosophy and what I kind of feel like all athletes need to be doing, not just speed power people. And uh, we've had a lot of success there. Spent a lot of time with, which actually you can see on my t-shirt, uh, summer track club that was once the Ladue Lightning, then the St. Louis Lightning, then the Gateway Track Club, then Gateway City United. So we've had a number of different uh, names with that program, but uh, consistently the coaching staff with that has been pretty, pretty much the same. And uh, I serve more as an assistant with that program because I'm going guns blazing you know, nine months out of the year. So I have to let somebody kind of take the, take the uh, bull by the horns, if you will, and, and be the head of that program. But, you know, in the spirit and promoting it and, and communicating, I'm kind of one of the key figures in that program. And uh, all of this kind of led to an exploration of, well, how do we make people faster? How do we make them stronger? And then who are the people I should be talking to and using as mentors to, to really find that information out because I was very frustrated as a young coach with, you know, some of the experiences that I had. And unfortunately, my first couple of years coaching, I was one of those people that just believed that, you know, either you're fast or you're not, and then just let's work the death out of people. And thankfully, um, through some really, you know, difficult times as a coach, I was able to learn that that isn't the case. And I found some really good mentors that helped kind of guide me down the path of how do we get this thing done to make people better. That's awesome, man. And then somewhere in the middle of all that, you put some pen down to paper and wrote a little thing and started sharing some stuff with, with people about how we can make people faster. Absolutely. So in 2012, with uh, some of the things that I was able to accomplish as a coach and everything that worked out really great, um, I was invited to go down to the uh, USATF uh, Emerging Elite. Uh, coaches school which is part of their olympic training center programs that they run there and uh i was at the in the cafeteria talking to a bunch of the coaches and and they, they began to start referencing articles that really were kind of important to them and, and their philosophy and these guys were just this is right when we walk in so no introductions have been made you know people aren't even paying attention to each other's name badges or anything and, and one of the coaches brings up an article that i wrote <laughs> and didn't know that it was me that wrote the article. <laughs> so at, at that point, I was like, uh, oh, wow. You know, like, first of all, I didn't think anybody was listening to anything that I was saying. And, and so part of it's like, I really need to pay a little more attention to my grammar, <laughs> my <laughs> sentence structure when I write. Um, and boy, I better have this information locked down and it better be at least thoughtful advice, even if it's not advice that everybody needs so that I'm not screwing anybody's athletes up through what I'm giving them but it kind of gave me the energy to realize, man, this is, I could, I could make a book. And with my connections and the people that I know in the track community, I think I could get this done. 
And uh, luckily, you know, I was able to attract a few big names uh, to the project and it kind of blossomed from there and it ended up being a five-year project to get this thing done. Yeah, so people that don't know about it, tell, tell them a little bit about the book. Tell them, you know, I mean, we can say big names, but let's be honest. We've got yeah. big names. Yes. Yeah, so one of the key one of the key contributors, you know, everybody knows Dan Path. Everybody knows Dan Path in a number of of different circles. So when he finally decided to join on, you know, the the names started coming fast and furious. You had Andreas Pam, and you had uh, Vince Anderson, and you've got Brooks Johnson, and you've got Curtis Taylor. Uh, you know, you've got Vern Gambetta, Tony Holler, Chris Corfus. You've got a variety of, of different people in different realms of speed. And uh, the names, you know, accumulating as we went along. And, and what was really cool in the world of track and field is, you know, everybody's uh, willing to share in the world of track and field. You know, and that isn't the case for um, other sports. Yeah, no, and I, I love that. And actually having the ability to sit down and listen to Dan and then try to look at what Dan can see, which is preposterous, um, you know, just here a few <laughs> weeks ago. Um, right. When he puts a video up of, like, talking about how somebody's spilling out and I'm just sitting there. And the only way I could have got closer to the screen is if I stood up and put my nose on it. Um, right. But yeah, you know, the, the people you have and Chris was here too, obviously, and just sensational dude. And the one thing that I wouldn't have guessed about Chris Corfus is how funny mm-hmm. he is. Yeah. The dude's a <laughs> stitch. Like he had yeah. me rolling like later on in the day, but super knowledgeable. And, you know, Tony's great and all these people are sensational. But now when right. you go back, doing something kind of like that with our manual, bringing all these people in, makes right. me second guess everything into like why I'm inhaling every day, you know, with some of the things that mm-hmm. we have people write. So going back over that five-year plan, what did it do to you as a coach? Well, you know, I had my preconceived notions when I first became a coach, and then I had my preconceived notions through my mentorship um, that it's like, okay, well, here's a very specific path that I can go down, and my kids are going to get better. And that coach, Coach Burris, is still a mentor of mine, and he is very, very, very good in the special endurance, speed endurance component. Um, we had a young man who I think set the, the, the world record on a split for under 20. He went 44, anywhere from between 44.70 something and 44.90, depending on who's timing and, and all of that, and ran the guys from dead last back into second place in the under 20, four by 400. So like, that's a guy I mentored under. So I believe and value in strength as a runner. And I know people are like, well, we want to improve absolute speed. Well, those guys are absolutely fast too. Hmm. I think what I was, what took me a hard, uh, not a hard time, but a long time to kind of figure out is there are many other ways that you can get to a performance like that with an athlete. And more specifically, I was like, every athlete fits down this funnel, you know, and this is what we're going to do. And this improves everyone. Well, that's fundamentally not right. Anytime you have an absolute, you're absolutely wrong. 
And so with Chris Corfist and Tony Holler and a little bit of Mike Cunningham and, or excuse me, Mike uh, Cunliffe and, and Curtis Taylor, it was like, well, you know, there are other ways that you can have athletes become very, very fast and improve a lot. And more specifically, not just there's other ways to do it. This is what I really gained from it is that different athletes need different things. So when you've got some people who are really buying into the feed the cats philosophy and maybe moving away from more of that Baylor Clyde Hart philosophy, that is good and bad simultaneously because it really is athlete dependent. You need to know what your athlete strengths are and you need to figure out what you want to do as a program. And so when I was going through these five years, that's, that's really what revealed itself to me. And, you know, we can apply that philosophy and that thought process, not to just how many meters you're running in a practice, but what you do when you do in the weight room, you know, and uh, what you do with the, in terms of supplements training, jump training, and really any other strategy that you want to apply to physical performance. And so that was the real hard hitting thing is this idea of it all depends. There's many roads to Rome and that we need to facilitate more athlete-specific training based on their abilities and the, their God-given gifts. Love it. So then how do you establish if it's a volume kid or you're going to be herding the cats? Perfect. So it takes a little bit of time. And so as a coach, you got to make some decisions, you know, and, and I'm a high school coach. So for me, it, it, I've got to be patient with evaluating my athletes and, and figuring out where they're at. So I have decided to kind of split the middle between the two philosophies and adhere more to a guy who coaches out in Australia, Mike Hurst. And his philosophy is a concurrent, which is, you know, in a philosophical view, it's the rising tide raises all ships. So you're trying to work on all of those concepts that are really important to building a, a fast athlete all at the same time. So, you know, just as much as special endurance or speed endurance is a part of your program, you're also working on maximum velocity and acceleration throughout a 10-day microcycle. And then as the athletes reveal themselves, then you decide, okay, I see that this athlete is hit a wall or they're not improving. And so then you've got to decide, okay, what do we want to do to try to elicit that training effect? And, you know, you've got to figure out at that point, this athlete really works well when they're doing acceleration or sled drives or pulls or maximum velocity. And this athlete seems to really continue to improve based off of the training that we're doing more towards the 400. Maybe we could even push that farther up to the 800. Now, more importantly, besides all that stuff, we test at the beginning of every track season to see where our athletes are at. And you got to make sure some of your tests are relative to power. Some of them are relative to acceleration. Some of them are relative to coordination and some of them are relative to some sort of uh, work capacity. So one of the things that we'll do is we'll do a 45 second test to kind of figure out, you know, if they've got some ability there. And then you crunch that number with the numbers of the standing and flying 30s and the standing long jump. And you can kind of begin to figure out what your athlete has and where their strengths and weaknesses are. And the key to that is those tests have to be performed in as stable of an environment. And I know you guys know this, but I'm preaching to the choir, but also even having the same person deliver that test year to year when you're a high school coach who doesn't have, 
you know, the resources of having a bunch of free lap timing systems or a Sprint 180 or things like that, even when you're still just using basic stopwatches and tape measures, that's a way that you can really cut down on a lot of user error and really figure out, you know, based over, you know, a long period of time, these numbers in my program show that this kid will eventually be able to perform this. And not only that, those numbers tell me this is where we should take that kid, you know. Love it. Now, you dropped a few names back there that also have some interesting things on the other portion of your career, which was the strength and conditioning realm. Right. So where does the weight room fit in with what you're doing? So for me, the weight room is huge in certain parts of the year. So first of all, our cross-country kids, they power clean, they deadlift, they squat, they bench press. And for a lot of cross-country coaches, they're not willing to, what they would say, sacrifice that time to get that done. We do that all year long. And one of the reasons why we do that all year long is that we feel like, you know, that's going to help our athletes stay healthy. You know, it improves bone density over time. And when you're working with female athletes, you know, the skeletal system is an issue in an endurance sport like cross-country. And then hormonally, you know, those athletes get a big benefit from lifting way late into the season, specifically females do. And so we won't back off the weight room until maybe one or two weeks out from their peaked competition, whatever that may be. And we found that that's helped. And it's really funny. We've also found that when they don't lift, they don't recover as well. And one of the reasons why is they probably don't, you know, do the things they need to do at home. They don't cool down properly. And so by lifted weights, after practice, at the end of practice, it helps pump blood back into those muscles that have been used and I believe helps recovery and helps flush out waste and, and things like that. And then specifically to the times of the year where the weight room becomes the most important, again, as a high school coach, what do I know? In Missouri, I know that the weather is going to be all over the place. And in the winter, we're more likely to get snow than some other places. We might not be able to get outside every day because it gets cold. So what can I guarantee I can improve on? And so for that four-month period between the end of football slash cross-country into spring sports, we lift four days a week. And the only day we, you know, we, we, don't, we don't work out on Fridays. If we worked out on Fridays like I used to, we'd lift on Fridays also. We'd lift five days a week. Um, with a four-day-a-week system, you know, we, we keep it pretty simple at the beginning, you know, and it's more of just an upper-body, lower-body day. And then we flow through different emphases and phases um, with that same process throughout the winter and we move forward into the track season and we get into track we go three days a week until we get into the peak competition and we back it down back to two and then in the summer we go back up to three days a week with my athletes who lift weights with us and then of course our cross-country kids and so the weight room is key and I think people who neglect the weight room I think are doing their athletes a, a disservice now I know you asked this question because philosophically, <laughs> um, you know, Tony Holler doesn't uh, want to lift weights with his with his athletes. Um, I just don't think that's I just I don't agree with that. I get the idea of keeping them healthy and you're not wasting energy and and your neurological system on something that's not real specific to absolute speed. But young people as a group tend to be very underpowered. And so I think, you know, when we move to later, you know, when Dan Path finally gets the kids that we're coaching, 
you know, then maybe the weight room is is de-emphasized. But when these young people, men and women, are are going through adolescence and their bodies are changing, um, why wouldn't you lift? Why wouldn't you do that? And from a hormonal perspective for women, from a safety perspective, from an overall general athleticism, all of these things I think are good. Now, occasionally you have to be careful. We had a young man who trained with us, Jared Ingram. He looked like Adonis in his upper body, but uh, he was gaining so much mass and so much strength that he almost became like a weeble wobble. You know, he was way too heavy up top. And so those are things which would facilitate what Tony's talking about. Like that isn't going to help your athlete. But I think if you're an experienced coach with a strength and conditioning background and some track and field background in there too, I think you catch those things before they become a problem. And uh, unfortunately, it takes some experience to do that. So you do sometimes kind of wish, man, if I could go back five or six years, I'd really like to have that athlete back, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's part of our process to learn as as coaches. And unfortunately, some of those early athletes that we get are, are kind of our guinea pigs. But people who are listening to this podcast and, and you and I chatting, they're already ahead of the curve. They know they're not going to make those mistakes. So I don't think that coaches should be afraid of the weight room. Do you treat the weight room more as a general means, or do you look at it specifically with each kid, um, like you're looking at with how you're identifying how they train on the track? Yes and no. So the problem is with the weight room is with track and field kids, they naturally don't think the weight room is that big of a deal. So you're always fighting the battle of, hey, I got to go study for a test, or I've got to go do this, or I've got to, you know, everything is, Everything off of the track is not important. Where when you're dealing with a football guy, it's the reverse. You know, they're hesitant to do stuff on the track because they're afraid their squat or bench numbers will go down. So it's a constant education to the attitude of the athlete, knowing what they're coming in with, with their bias. And so as a coach, our job is not to be biased. Our job is to facilitate that athlete to our best of our abilities. Now, when you know what their strengths and weaknesses are, so for example, if they're a a hamstring centric athlete, they're real bouncy, they're real neural, then you should probably start lifting in the weight room with some, you know, single leg behind the back and more stability and proprioceptive types of actions in the weight room. If they're a quadricep centric athlete, then you're probably going to lift with both legs on the ground and, and build as much horsepower as you can and, and get those tires as big as you can. Cause that's how they, you know, get down the track and or down the football field or down the soccer pitch to the best of their abilities. You know, they're kind of a bulldog and in a perfect world, we'd want all of our athletes to be hamstring centric, but that's not how they were taught. And that's not how they learned the motor patterns. And so our job as a coach is to kind of see that stuff, figure that stuff out and start prescribing weight room training that that's to that benefit. But before you can do that real talk, real world example, if they're not spending time in the weight room, or they're constantly cutting it short, or somehow they disappear by the time you get in there with all your athletes, then having the great laid out plan and the best transitions and phases, that stuff doesn't matter. And so when I have kids like that, then we have a very basic routine and I don't reward them with a detailed training system until they prove to me that they're there, you know, more than 75% of the time. And once they prove that, then we start designing more specific workouts. So that becomes kind of a reward for them because 
if they're not there 75% of the time, I don't even know what the weight room is doing. And I don't feel comfortable moving them on to something that's more technically challenging or more intensity challenging because that's just dangerous. No doubt. So then how do you, how do you then, is it only based off of attendance or do you have some like benchmarks they need to hit or is it simply just mechanically, you know, front side versus backside, like you were saying, like quads versus hammies, how they're running? So the big thing is, is, you know, we try to start with, with attendance first. Then once attendance is solid, then we look at quad or hamstring. Then we also look at sports specific. So I have like what I would call rotational sports that I build a weight room routine for. So if they're a softball player, tennis player, uh, golf player, we even had a guy coming in who was a bowler. <laughs> so when you're dealing with athletes like that who are doing a lot of asymmetry, then we develop a weight room program that not only attacks the swivel and, and rotation that we want through medicine balls, through dumbbell swings, through kettlebell swings, and things like that, but we also want to make sure that we um, address that asymmetry and we want to make sure that they're they're ready to rock. Now, outside of, you know, kind of different phases in the year, you want them to not be too overloaded on one side because you don't want them to get hurt. So I always say in the off season, you know, you can attack uh, the issues that get developed from that asymmetry. But then in the regular season, you probably should own it and just go with what they're good at. And so that's something that we will do is design workouts like that. And then I'll have a, and again, as a, as a high school coach, you got to make some decisions. So when in the winter, you've got all these athletes from all these different sports and, and you could go crazy if you're you know, scripting all these workouts and you could have a multitude of different athletes in there. And that's great. But you also have to think about you only have so many racks, you only have so many platforms, you only have so many machines, you only have so many medicine balls. So you've got to come with some commonalities. So for an example, what I'll do is, you know, besides the rotational with volleyball players and jumpers, well, that's a pretty similar athlete, you know, so then they get a similar weight program, you know, with distance runners and, and some soccer players, if they are more of a speed endurance athlete or a middle distance athlete, then the distance training and the soccer players training will look a lot alike. And then of course your short sprinters and your football players, their training will look a lot alike. And then you've got your throwers where they're training. If whether they're a thrower or an offensive or defensive lineman, their training will look a lot alike. And so that way you can attack some more general groups by not overwhelming yourself by planning and trying to figure out what all this different training is doing. And then you can kind of figure out that training response a little bit easier while at the same time facilitating the variety of athletes that you coach. Is that probably your biggest challenge then as a coach, just the size of the groups that you've got to handle at a high school? Yeah, I think that, you know, we don't have a lot of assistance and sometimes you have a couple people that seem really enthusiastic, but then when they understand how you have to pay the toll and what, what price has to be paid for you to be successful, I mean, it's every day after school. You know, I work 11 hours a day, every day, my entire life. And then in the summer, I get a little bit of a break, you know, um, outside of the classroom, but I'm there, you know, from 7.35 to, to uh, you know, anywhere from six to 6.30 almost every day. And because of that, I might be the only guy who's there from November through February, you know? And so I, if I want to be effective and I want kids to be a part of this and I want this to be our culture, 
you know, you've got to figure out how to manage those large groups. That's inc- extraordinarily important as a high school coach. No, I love it, man. I love it. Well, let me get you out of here on this, bud, because there's, there's a lot of freaking killer stuff in here. Where are they going to get this book? Yeah. Because they need to have this book. And if you don't have this book, <laughs> listen to the man, then pause yeah. the talk, type it in your browser, and go get the book. Yeah, so the book is on Amazon, and you can buy it anywhere that Amazon sells books. Um, there's also a Kindle version that's on there through Amazon. Now, that that book is a, a little bit of a different format. It's 1,700 pages. <laughs> the, and, the, and the regular book itself is uh, 763 pages. But uh, I think it's important, you know, for people to understand that to cover this topic, there's so much there that if you don't have that kind of breadth and depth to the book, you're not going to get what you want from it. And uh, so you can get it on Amazon. You can also cut out the middleman on Amazon and buy it from Vervante. And uh, that doesn't help you out, but it helps it helps me out. I get a little bit larger chunk um, from that company for the book. And then if people are a little hesitant to buy it, uh, I've got a free chapter, which is chapter three on speedendurance.com. And then I've got a chapter and a half Kindle version at the Amazon site. So they can kind of take a look and, and see what the content is and, and everything. But it's it's meaty. And I what I've constantly heard from a lot of people when they've picked this book up, they cannot believe how large and heavy it is you know when they hear 763 pages they don't realize well that's an 8 by 11 book with a 10 point font with no spacing with 50 contributors um so in some ways it could be intimidating Mm -hmm. but it's not meant to yeah but it's not meant to be read cover to cover and so i would say you know if you really want to know something and you have a want to have a coach's clinic in a book the Sprinter's Compendium is probably the best example of a coach's clinic in a book. And what's great, and a long time ago, I remember there was that debate between, I forget who it was, Mike Boyle and somebody else about different types of lifting and 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 all of that. And it was like this big throwdown at a, at a big strength and conditioning conference. Well, you get a lot of that in this book, too, where different coaches provide different ideas. You know, Tony Holler's view of the weight room is going to be very different than mine. Tony's a really smart guy. I got no problem with that. In fact, it's probably important to hear that to make you pause and think about what you're really trying to accomplish. Just like, you know, some people don't want to go and run larger intervals or longer intervals, but man, it seems like the people that do that all the time are pretty darn good at the 400 and four by four because training has consequences. And so I think those contrasting views in this book are outstanding and it's a strength of the book. Yeah. Now, it's been off the whole time, so I didn't want to ruin the freaking thing, but uh, the signal we had. But hopefully it's up now. Yo, get it. And he's not kidding, dude. It's as thick as my (laughs) damn head. And and when you want to talk about conflicting styles, the first two names listed, Hawk and Anderson and Vern Gambetta. I mean, like, you want to talk about conflicting styles. Like, you don't have to go any further. The one person right. that I might want to ask you about when we're done, or I might ask you now, and he's a guy that, because of my relationship with Kier, has sure. always super intrigued me, is Jonas. Yeah. Yeah, so Jonas is a disciple of, uh, of Dan Path, you know, and that when they were over there with Team Britain, and um, a really in- intriguing individual. And again, 
you know, somebody who's had a lot of success. Everybody talks about how Britain's got all this money and, and all the sponsorship and support, but they don't have a collegiate and high school system like we do. They have horrible weather all the time, mm-hmm. you know. Most of the Brits are vitamin D deficient. You know, you can't get outside and train. And people like with our American bias, we're like, oh, well, we'll just go up to the local high school and train. Well, that's not the situation in Britain at all. And so for him to be able to have that amount of success and to really improve people that work underneath him. And that's what I'm I'm looking for from coaches is it's nice to have these elite names and and these people. But, you know, what's your improvement? You know, and that's kind of where, again, going back to Tony Holler's idea of of record, rank, publish. You know, if you look at Jonas's record as a coach and the athletes he's worked with and how they've been able to stay healthy and have success and improve in an environment that isn't built for speed necessarily, he's done very, very well. Yeah, that's why I think Hawkins is stud too. Absolutely, without a doubt. And that's one of the funniest things is, you know, some of the best coaches are not in environments that are necessarily uh, best for coaching. And why is that? Well, because weather and, and, and conditions and genetics and lots of athletes make a lot of bad coaches look good. And those athletes can succeed in spite of them. In my first, you know, four and a half, five years of coaching, all of my athletes succeeded in spite of me. And now I hope that, you know, they're at least not getting hurt by me. And then maybe somewhere down the line, 20 or 30 years down the line, I could say, yeah, I I had a lot to do with their success. Um, And uh, and that's just the nature of our environment. So if you're the if you're in Sweden, you've only got so many people. You've only got so many resources. The weather is terrible, you know, and so you've got to maximize the things that you have and you can't make mistakes. And him and uh, Hawken and and Jonas do a great job of that. Dude, Hawken has had to be a fireman. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like he's a fireman. You know, like right. He, right. he didn't pick like some cushy profession. I mean he's a fireman. Right. <laughs> Coaching national champions. Which, says, which which says something, right? Because yeah. when you're in a situation like this, the fire doesn't allow you to make a lot of uh long brooding you know, uh, decisions, you got to have some, you got to make some choices. You got to make some choices quick and you got to make some decisions on, okay, what is the best outcome in this situation now? And I think that, you know, believe it or not, I think that skill set is really applicable to coaching in terms of there are things that happen, even in a sport that's really controlled, like track and field, there's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of the three ring circus. And so as a coach, you've got to be able to stay calm and you've got to be able to, you know, uh, synergistically pull all this information together to make some really good choices. And yeah, the sacrifice that some of these people have to make is just outrageous just so that they can coach. Yeah. He's amazing, man. Like when he came in it took like five minutes in the car for me just to be like, okay. This dude's right. the real deal. And then when he started talking about being a fireman, I'm just sitting here thinking, like, that's like, that's like John Lennon needed to be a fireman to me. <laughs> like, that makes no sense. Like, how is this, like, one of the top guys in the world? Like, I, it, I guess just is what it is. But it's, well, he's amazing. Yeah, he is. And I, would, I think it also speaks to, like, certain realms in sport have really done a good job of selling their importance and the fact that they need to get paid. And there was a huge debate um, online between 
like a couple people like Latif put out a, a meme out there about how, you know, coaches shouldn't give everything away for free. And then there was some clap backing from some of the folks at some other groups saying, well, you know, we should give things away for free and, and that, you know, eventually we can then get money from folks. And, and I think that, you know, in the world of track and field, we've really undersold our value. And not that we want to be millionaires through sport, but the fact is, is like there's a lot of people doing track and field around the world and there is there is money in it. Nike wouldn't be a company if there was no money in running. And so and and, and in sprinting and in speed, all those millions of high school kids that do that do track and field around the world and well, you know, young kids that do track and field around the world, there's money to be made there. And I think that we've kind of said you know, hey, we're going to give these things away for free or we're not a we're not a uh, what do they call it? A, a, a marketable sport or a revenue sport. And that's not true. It can be a revenue sport. We just have to kind of think differently. And we also have to carry ourselves in a way that, hey, you know, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to do things for you. But at the end of the day, there needs to be some sort of commerce happening here, too. You know, and I think that that's important and that speaks to Hawkins situation that, you know, here he's got to go do this job or like, for example, in the world of track and field and college coaching, those college coaches don't make a lot of money in comparison to a lot of the other sports, even sports that don't make a lot of money. And it's one of those things where it's like if you want a good coach, like let's say somebody like, you know, that's this guy. We got a guy, Jesse Griffin in Kansas City. He's won two different national uh, coaches of the year awards two years in a row. The guy is a genius. He somebody you probably should talk to soon. But you know, for him to go coach college track, it would be a pay cut by like forty or fifty thousand dollars. You know, and here's a guy that could radically change your program. But he's not going to leave high school because financially, it's it's suicide. And so that, I think that really, yeah, it's wild. That's wild. Listen, Ryan, this is absolutely killer stuff, man. I can't thank you enough for spending the time with us today. People are going to love this, brother. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Yo, but in all seriousness, hop on, grab the book. You need this. Appreciate you, bro. We'll be in touch real soon. Yeah, man. Thanks. And a huge thanks to Ryan Banta for spending the time with us today. Guys, awesome stuff. And again, grab the book. I'm not kidding. It's an absolutely fantastic uh, desk reference to have. There is tons of information. It's gigantic. Follow the links below in the show notes and make sure you pick up your copy today. But now, awesome talk. Super candid. Love how Ryan's breaking things down to make sure he's giving his athletes the best he can. Can't thank him enough for being so open on and candid with us today. And as always, guys, I hope you enjoyed the talk. And if you did, please share it through the social media outlet of your choice. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it may be. As always, we're just trying to get the best information out there possible to all the fantastic people involved with what we do here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. And as always, guys, thank you for everything that you do for us here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. We will be back next week with another awesome guest. We will see you then.